Our sermon today is taken from Luke chapter 24, verses 1 to 12. This is the word of God. The Resurrection But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stopping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home, marveling at what had happened. Thus says the Lord. Paul in 1 Corinthians said that if the resurrection isn't true, if it didn't actually happen, then why bother at all? with the rest of the Bible. And he's right, if the resurrection isn't true, then all of the Old Testament prophecies is a bust. Jesus in the New Testament was a big lie. So why bother with any of it? But, he says, the opposite must also then be true. If the resurrection did happen, you see, if Jesus really did raise from the dead, then no matter how unsettling some parts of the Bible may be to you, no matter how uncomfortable some of Jesus' teachings may be to you, then you got to give it a hearing. I mean, you, ju- you just got to. How can you not? He raised from the dead, you see. It's like when you're trying to untangle a big, messy knot. You know, there's usually the, that one central knot. And it, if you can just find that one central knot and you kind of uh, untangle that central knot, the rest of the knot kind of just more easily untangles for you. Easter, the resurrection, is the central knot for Christianity for the whole Bible. If it's a lie, then just be done with the whole thing. But if it's true, then you gotta at least give it a serious hearing. And as we study the passage today, I I hope uh, as we learn about the resurrection, it could help untangle some knots for us. If, If you're not a Christian, I hope this passage clarifies the Christian faith to you just a little bit more. But if you are a Christian today and you're listening to this, I hope it'll give you power, power to carry on with your life with resurrection hope. All right, so let's jump into our passage today. There's three things I want to point out from this passage and what we'll see here about the resurrection. One, it'll take divine intervention for you to believe. Two, it'll change your life if you believe. Three, because it'll clarify what's yours when you believe. It'll take divine intervention for you to believe. It'll change your life if you believe because it'll clarify what's yours when you believe. Let's start with our first point. It will take divine intervention for you to believe. Okay, let's start at the first verse of our passage. And stick with me as I point out a few details from from this one verse because they're actually pretty important details. First, look at what day it said it was. 
it says in the first day of the week, meaning this was, it was a Sunday, right? So, so this tells us the setting of the story happened three days after Jesus was crucified because he was crucified on a Friday, okay? And then look at who was there. It says, they went to the tomb. Who's, who's they? We'll skip to verse 10. It tells you it's Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and other women who were with them. And we know from the rest of the book, these were pretty devout followers of, of Jesus. And then look at what they were doing. They were bringing spices to Jesus' grave. Now, this was a Jewish custom back, custom back then that if someone's been dead for three days, you go to their tomb and you, and you kind of put aromatic spices on their dead body for ritualistic reasons, but also so that the body wouldn't, wouldn't smell too bad. Now, all these details are important because what Luke's trying to show us here is that these women, they had no faith in the resurrection initially. Think about it. Jesus has taught many times throughout the book of Luke, at least six times it's recorded, that after he dies for our sins, he will be raised again on the third day. And here we are on the third day, remember, after Jesus died with some of his closest followers, but yet they came to the grave bringing spices to adorn a dead corpse. Meaning, they didn't really believe what Jesus said was actually going to happen. They didn't initially believe in the resurrection. You know why? Well, for the same reason of why many people today don't believe in the resurrection, because it's a pretty crazy claim to make. It, it is. See, we, we today, you know, people of modernity, often think of people back then and say, well, you know, of course, people back then would just believe in these things like the resurrection because it's a pre-scientific age, right? People then just kind of were more naive. They just believed in things like this. But that's actually a pretty arrogant way to think because that's not true at all. The woman didn't really believe in it. And skip to verse 11. The woman told the disciples about the resurrection after they witnessed what they witnessed. And what did the disciples say? They said these women were telling an idle tale. That, that phrase was used back then to describe people who were mumbling because they're sick. Like when your friend comes back from the dentist after being happy gassed, that's, that's idle talk. This is Jesus' very own disciples. You can't get more in the inner circle than this. But even they were like, y'all are crazy. What? Resurrection? See, this is a good lesson for the church because we gotta be careful not to guilt shame people who have questions about the resurrection and treat them as if they're the anomaly, right? We often say, don't be like Doubting Thomas. Don't be like that one weird guy in the Bible who didn't believe in the resurrection. That one guy, what do you mean? This story clearly tells us that Doubting Thomas wasn't alone. In fact, he was among the majority. There are more immediate skeptics in the Bible about the resurrection than there were immediate believers. Don't guilt shame people who have questions. So let's continue our story. Go to verse two. So these women finally arrived at the grave and what did they see? They saw the, the stone rolled away and the body of Jesus wasn't there, it was gone. Now, okay, at this point, you'd probably think, surely now, right? They saw the stone rolled away, they saw the empty tomb. Surely now it'll click in their heads. Oh yeah, Jesus said this was gonna happen. Surely now they'll believe, but no. Even after they saw the stone rolled away and the empty grave, it still didn't click. Verse four said they were perplexed, meaning they were still weighing the options in their mind. Okay, empty tomb. Few options here. One, Roman soldiers could have taken him. Grave robbers could have done it or something else could have happened. Whatever they were thinking, 
the passage here tells us they were perplexed, meaning they didn't yet really believe, not truly until verse 8, when it says they remembered or they believed. So this passage tells us something else needs to happen in order for them to believe. Their own sight, their own reasoning was not sufficient. Something else needed to happen. What was it? Well, let's take a look at verses 4 to 8. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And these were angels, as also was recorded in the other Gospels. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men, the angels, said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has arisen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day, rise. Then and only then, after the angels told them this in verse 8, it said that they believed. Now, what, what's the point here? The point is that without divine intervention, without aid from above, humans will never believe. And this isn't unique to the Gospel of Luke. Other Gospels stress the same thing. In Matthew and Mark, the resurrection didn't click for anyone either until angels, it says, literally came from above. Help came from above, it says. The book of John, same thing. It literally says Peter and the others were kind of standing in front of the grave and literally said they did not understand until the resurrected Jesus himself came and explained everything to them. Unless there's aid from above, the Bible says, unless there's divine intervention, human reason on its lonesome cannot observe the data and make that leap of faith to land on the conclusion that Jesus really is the Son of God who died and resurrected for my sins. It can't, we can't. All right, let me, let me try and make this more tangible for us. I, I promise it'll end up connecting with the passage and also with our day-to-day lives, okay? Many of us today are like the woman in this passage. We're perplexed. We're presented with this claim in the Bible that Jesus resurrected and a few options come to mind to make sense of this story, right? And here are some of the most popular explanations aside from the actual resurrection itself. That someone took Jesus' body, okay? Whether that's a Roman soldier or, or grave robbers or Jesus' own fanatic disciples who wanted to kind of stage uh, uh, the, the resurrection. That's one option. Others say Jesus didn't really die on the cross. He just kind of like passed out. That's another option. Or one of the most popular conclusions today is that the whole story was fake to begin with and none of it, none of it really happened. It was all made up. And many people land on these conclusions because they say this. Uh, I, I land on these conclusions because there is no conclusive evidence for the resurrection. And because there is no conclusive evidence for the resurrection, I won't believe it. I refuse to believe it. Now, here's the rub. They forget that they don't have conclusive evidence for their position either. When it comes to this matter, no one has conclusive empirical evidence that shuts down the whole discussion. That doesn't exist. Now you can say things like, it makes more sense to me that Roman soldiers took the body, or it's possible that a disciple has just made this whole thing up. Or you can say that it's very unlikely someone would be raised from the dead. You can say those things, but you have to realize None of those things are conclusive empirical evidences. They're not. Meaning, here's a point, just like Christians, you too, if you don't believe in the resurrection, you too took a leap of faith to land on your claim. When it comes to the claims of the resurrection, 
Everyone took a leap of, leap of faith, you see. Christians took a leap of faith to believing that the resurrection happened, but non-Christians also took a leap of faith to believing that the resurrection didn't happen. Now, I can't tease this as much as I want to, but let me just bring it back to the passage. And how does it connect to the passage and to our everyday lives? Well, it humbles non-Christians. That's one way it affects it because it levels the playing field, right? It makes you realize that you too took a leap of faith because none of us have conclusive evidences. But secondly, it humbles Christians. It humbles Christians because it's saying, Christian, the only reason why you were able to take the leap of faith toward believing the resurrection instead of the leap of faith toward not believing in the resurrection is because you were given aid from above. So don't get cocky. When Peter told Jesus that he believed Jesus was the son of God in, in Matthew 16, verse 17, Jesus immediately responded and said, good, good, Peter, that you were able to land on that conclusion. But remember, you didn't land there because of flesh and blood. You didn't get there because of your own reasoning. It was the Father in heaven who revealed it to you. It humbles non-Christians, but it also humbles Christians. What a pride-killing, sobering, ego-smashing worldview. So don't guilt shame those with questions, Christians. You have questions too. And the only reason why you're able to believe amidst of all those questions the only reason why you took that leap of faith is because the Father had mercy on you and gave you aid from above. So let's not be so full of ourselves. Okay. That doesn't, however, mean that we can't weigh the reasons, right? Of why the resurrection is a reasonable thing to believe in. There, there are many reasons as to why one would believe it. And, and we see, I think, in this passage, one of the biggest reasons of why the resurrection is a reasonable thing to believe in. And it's because of this. It's because the way the lives of the early disciples were totally changed. That's why I think the, the resurrection is a reasonable thing to, to believe in, okay? The people who supposedly witnessed the resurrection, their lives were flipped upside down in an instant, which leads us to our second point. Okay, I want you to pay attention to the change of mood here in this passage. And, and Luke does this a lot, by the way, in the way he writes about the resurrection. Look at how the people in the story is depicted in the beginning of the passage, and then let's look at how they're depicted at the end of the passage. In the beginning, the picture are these women who are kind of just walking sad towards Jesus' grave, like, like anyone would visiting a grave site of an old dead friend, right? Somber, sluggish, every step feels like a grind. But then when the angels came, they asked these group of despondent people, why do you seek the living among the dead? Why do you seek the living among the dead? Now, now they weren't actually expecting an answer here. It's not like they didn't know what the answer was. It was a rhetorical question. You see, you know the kind of question that a counselor would ask to a counselee to kind of lead them to an aha moment? That's what the angels were doing here. Why, why are you seeking the living among the dead? They're asking them, why are y'all acting like Jesus is still dead? Look at your current mood. Look at your facial expressions. Look at your current energy level. It's like you're about to visit a dead friend, not a risen savior. And these women, by God's grace, got it. It clicked. They're right, these women said. Jesus did say he will raise again on the third day. And as soon as they believed, look at how their mood changes from verses 9 onwards. It was totally different. 
their energy level immediately changed. They're no longer dragging their feet toward a grave. They're, they're running towards the disciples, to other people, telling them about this amazing news. They're, they're energized, they're excited, they're alive, you see. Peter's mood was also depicted as changing, whereas at first he was portrayed as, you know, sitting in grief with the other disciples, sulking in their circumstances. Look at the three verbs used to describe Peter in verse 12. After he heard about the resurrection, he rose, he ran, he marveled. Look at that. He rose, he ran, he marveled. Those who were downcast found life. Those who were defeated found hope. Those who given up found passion and purpose. So much so that even when people persecuted Peter and, and these other early Christians for preaching the resurrection, they didn't back down. They gave their lives up for this truth. Yeah, but people give their lives up for their religion all the time. Okay, true. But you have to remember that Christianity at this time wasn't yet a full-blown religion. These people and the early Christians didn't give their lives up for a religion. They gave their lives up for a person. For the truth that he's resurrected. That's what got them in trouble in the book of Acts. When Jesus' followers started preaching about the resurrection, that's when the stones started being thrown. But yet they stuck with it. They stuck with their claim that Jesus has risen and they went to the ends of the earth to preach it, to plant churches, to risk their lives for it, for this truth. And it happened quite suddenly to quite a lot of people, this, this change. And, and Luke, being the physician that he is, just to make sure that no one could call him a liar, he puts the exact names of the people that he talks about in this narrative. He didn't just say the woman or the disciples, you know. He names them. Why? Because he's inviting the readers to check it out for themselves. You don't believe in what I'm saying? Go ask him yourselves. By the way, here are their names specifically. And the book was written within the lifetime of some of these people who saw the resurrection, as we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Here are some of their names, by the way. Mary Magdalene, very specific, who was a well-known former prostitute in that region. Joanna, who in Luke chapter 8, verse 3, was specifically identified as Herod's household manager's wife. And Herod was a Roman governor that ruled over Galilee at the time. And Mary, Mary was there. In case you're wondering, Mary, the mother of James. See how specific he was? You see, he's saying, here they are. Here they are. You don't believe me? Go get on a donkey and go ask them yourselves. And the place where this letter was written to was only a few days ride from where all these people were named in this document lived. It was very possible to do that. Now, if you're trying to make up a lie, why would you claim that there are eyewitnesses to the lie? And then why would you give specific identification of these people and put that name, those names down in a public document? Two different Marys, Joanna, Peter, and then later uh, Luke also named a guy named Cleopas. And then the other gospel writers wrote other names. Paul did it too in 1 Corinthians 15. Go and ask him. Ask him yourselves and look at their lives. How did they get from defeat to victory? from sluggishness to power, from giving up in life to having more purpose in their lives than they've ever felt before. How did it happen? Ask them. And by the way, what a good question to ask ourselves. It's gotta make us wonder, doesn't it? Is it maybe true that perhaps the reason as to why my Christian walk often feels so sluggish is because it's been more about remembering the sacrifice of a good person in the past 
rather than about living life with a currently resurrected king. Look, you can serve a dead Jesus. The woman here did. There were, in verse 1, they were just following tradition, dragging their feet. They wanted to honor Jesus' corpse. They wanted to serve it. You see, does your Christianity feel more like you're serving the memory of a dead person, or does it feel like you're living your life with a resurrected king? If it doesn't, then it'll do us good to hear the angelic question. Why are you living as if your king is dead? Why aren't you rising? Why aren't you running? Why aren't you marveling? These women were, Peter was, why aren't you? Well, some might respond because I didn't see the resurrection myself. That, right? You know, I, if I saw the resurrection, surely the shock of the miracle would kind of get me going too, you know? But see, that, that's what a lot of people misunderstand. People think what got these people excited was the miracle itself, like, like the wow factor to it. You know, like how you see huge fireworks and a surge of energy flows through your body. That's not what energized them. That kind of power is big, but, it, but it's short-lived. So what is it that actually gave these people power? Well, it's because the resurrection solidified to them what actually now belongs to them. It leads us to a third point. The resurrection will clarify what's yours when you believe. Take a look at our last verse. Look at verse 12. Now, at a glance, you read this verse, and there seems to be this detail that can be easily mistaken as unimportant, but actually it's one of the most, I think, important details of this whole passage. Luke says that when Peter stooped in the empty tomb, he saw the linen cloths by themselves. Now, that, that's very important. Why? Well, one, yes, because it solidifies the case that it's very unlikely someone took the body. Okay, because why would somebody go through the trouble of unwrapping a heavy dead body and make it harder on themselves to carry out of the tomb unwrapped. That makes little sense, but that's not the main importance of the detail. The main reason of why this detail is important is because Luke wanted to emphasize the kind of resurrection that Jesus experienced. It was a bodily resurrection. It was a physical, holistic resurrection. Okay, why is that important? Well, because throughout the Bible, over and over again, the New Testament authors emphasize that the kind of resurrection Jesus had is the first fruits, that's how it's described, of our redemption. S stick with me here. When a tree would bear fruit, you can generally know how good the, the, uh, the crop that year would be based on the quality of the first fruit that comes out of the tree. So the first fruit is good, then the rest of the fruit will be good. If the first fruit's bad, then it's likely that the rest of the fruit that follows would also be bad because the tree's bad. Jesus is bodily resurrection was the first fruit of our redemption, New Testament says. You know what that means? That means we too will be redeemed in the similar way. Our fate will follow, you see, to that redemption. Meaning it's not that we're just going to be redeemed spiritually, as many people think, right? Our souls fly to heaven and we're just kind of Casper in the sky. But our whole bodies will be redeemed. You see, it's a holistic Redemption, bodily, emotionally, cognitively, physically, mentally. And in other words, when that day comes, you'll finally be whole. You'll be whole. You know, every now and then in life, there are these moments where you feel whole. Where everything just kind of fits. You know what I mean? It just, it just fits. Now, this doesn't happen often. And when it does happen, usually it's tamed by the knowledge that it won't last but it does happen every now and then. I was, a, I was a little late writing my sermon this week, 
So I actually finished writing this third point on Saturday. So the kids were home, right, at this time, and Tati took Elena out to the um, apartment clubhouse where they kind of played. And I was left in the house alone with, with Liam, my son who's about to turn three in a few days. And we were playing in the playroom downstairs with his Legos. And it was just one of those moments. He was being pleasant, you know, he wasn't throwing any tantrums. And the game also didn't require me to move a lot so I could kind of rest as I was entertaining him. And if you don't have, if you don't have kids, if you're not a parent, you have no idea how key that is. And because of that, I was also able to hold my cup of coffee and drink it while we we're playing. And it was the perfect temperature. And Liam was enjoying the game so much, he was laughing, but like that, that deep belly laughter kind of laugh, you know? And I also had my Spotify playlist on, and the next song that happened to come up in the rotation was by one of my favorite artists, Bon Iver. So that was lovely. And then on top of that, this morning, um, as I was recording this on a Saturday, it was also raining just enough outside to accompany my warm cup of coffee. And everything, for about 10 minutes, was whole. Everything fit in place. Life was whole. You might have experienced this, right? And for you, it could have been different moments. A beginning of a new romantic relationship with so much hope for the future. Your wedding day, the birth of a child. Or that moment at the end of the day when you hit the couch with a smirk on your face after accomplishing something that day that you've been building up your whole life to accomplish. Reconciling with a family member that you've been estranged for years with. Whatever that moment is for you, you've had those moments, you know you have, when life felt whole. However, in this world, those moments are usually imperfect because it's always tainted by the reality that it's gonna end. But heaven, you see, when Peter saw that linen cloth, it dawned on him. He realized what was awaiting him at the end of the road. Not a partial, but a holistic redemption, a holistic resurrection, where life will be whole without end. And one day, everything will fit in place. And he doesn't need to hold back diving into the moment because it will never end. He will never be disappointed. That's what Peter saw when he saw the linen cloth laying there on its own. Jesus rose holistically and he marveled. He marveled, you know, you're a kid, you're waiting in line forever to get on this roller coaster that you've been dreaming on getting for a long time and you finally get close enough to the front of the line and you finally see it, right? Now you're not on it yet. You're not on it yet, but you're close enough to see it. The roller coaster, just how big it is, how fast it goes, the sound it makes, the screams it produces. And what do you do? You marvel. You marvel because you saw what you will soon experience. Although you're not on it yet. Peter marveled because he saw what one day he'll experience. And he's lived his life marveling ever since. That's why he was able to give his whole life to this. That's why hundreds of people from the early church gave their lives to this truth of the resurrection. That's why Paul was able to endure shipwrecks, hunger, thirst, beatings for the message of the cross because Jesus resurrected, he says. Oh, death, where is your sting? He shouts. So are you saying that the resurrection, you know, because it happened, because that's what I believe I'll, I'll get at the end, I should never feel sad in this life? Well, well, no. You can feel multiple emotions at the same time, you know. Humans aren't like operating systems in the 60s. 
You can process a few different windows at the same time. Mourn when your life requires it. Jesus did. Be angry when things are unjust. Jesus was. Be hurt when things are awful. Shed tears when things are sad. Jesus did. But you can do all that without losing the marvelous wonder of what's awaiting you now in Christ. See, if you're honest about your sadness and anger without marveling in this hope, that'll crush you and you'll just be unbearably pessimistic all the time. But if you marvel in this resurrection hope without being honest about your sadness and your anger, that'll make you foolish. People are just going to roll their eyes at you because you're just not living in reality. But if you're both honest about your sadness and anger, and at the same time marveling at this hope of the future holistic redemption that Christ has purchased for you, well, that's what the internal life of a worshiper looks like. That you're mourning, but you're not mourning without hope. You'll be realistic about life, but you also have real hope for the future, you see. Are you marveling? So let me, let me end with this. I think there's, uh, there's more to Peter's marveling here. The empty tomb did more to Peter, I think, than just vivify his future. I think it also clarified his past. You ever, uh, you ever watch a movie with a twist ending, you know? And then you watch it for a second time, then you can't watch it without that ending in mind. You, you see the whole movie with the lenses of, of that ending. You know, I don't know if you've seen Shutter Island, right? Leonardo DiCaprio was a detective in the beginning of the movie investigating the death of, of a family. Um, so he went to this mental asylum, but then at the end of the movie, it turns out he himself was a patient, right? And the whole thing was in his mind. And the second time you watch the movie, you can't rewatch it the same, the same way. You're going to interpret it with what you saw in the end. How could Peter, you know, after seeing the empty tomb, after seeing the linen cloth, how could he not have the memories of his past be interpreted by it? It's true. It's really true, he must have thought. He really is God. He rose again. When he was teaching me all these things, that was God in the flesh teaching me. When he fed me alongside the masses, that was God in the flesh who gave me fish and bread. When he washed my feet, that was God who washed my feet. And when he was crucified, that was God who paid for something that he didn't do so that I can get something I never earned. The empty tomb vivified his future and clarified his past, and he marveled. Are you marveling? Christian, there are many valid reasons as to why your life feels like it's a grind right now. I'm not saying they're not valid. All I'm saying is that you can still marvel. Yes, even now, amidst this pandemic, Amidst this financial uncertainty, amidst the loneliness, you can still marvel. Do you realize what God did for you? Do you realize what's in store for you? Rise, run, marvel. Your life isn't meant to be lived commemorating a dead Savior. It's meant to be lived in power with a risen King. Oh, how would your life be different if you really believe that? Well, You'd be saying with the Christians of old, were the whole realm of nature mine, that'd be an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Let's pray.
Father, the kind of life that Paul described living in 1st and 2nd Corinthians is a kind of life that he said would be absolutely stupid if the resurrection isn't true. Are we living that kind of life? Would people look at our lives and say, that is stupid, <laughs> that's kind of dumb, if the resurrection isn't true, but if it is true, then it truly is the wisest way to invest our life now. And the one who will eventually win, for the one who has conquered, for the one who has risen, for the one who has dominion over all things. Let us, Father, rise, run, and marvel. Help us do that. Help the resurrection of Christ not just be an old story that's been told over and over again. Let it be a true, powerful reality that dictates our lives and causes us to live in a way that is foreign to this world because we're living for another. We beg you of these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.